Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and today we are going to take another step towards escaping the cave by actually re-watching or re-listening to an old episode that I am transferring over from my other show, That's BS. So, as I said before, um, this show is basically the new start to anything that I'm doing related to philosophy, and that show is continuing to be um, a political show, a show about society, culture, um, a more laid-back discussion show. So, this is a an episode that I had previously done um, on That's BS, but I think it's relevant to this show and its topics, and so I'm going to carry it over. So, here it is, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to That's BS. I'm Jordan Myers, and today we have a special guest. We've got Paul Vanderclay. So, uh, Paul, I want to welcome you to the channel and uh, open it up. Please tell people a little bit about you and your projects and what you're interested in. Okay. Well, as, as you said, my name is Paul Vanderclay. I'm a pastor in Sacramento, California, in the Christian Reformed Church. Uh, I've been doing that for a good number of years. Lately, I've whatever fame or notoriety I have comes from doing commentary videos, mostly on the work of Jordan Peterson, but a lot of other things connected with him. I've also been interested in doing meetups of gathering a dozen or so people in a room to talk about Jordan Peterson and what they've learned from him. My, although I'm very interested in the work of Jordan Peterson, probably my primary interest is in the phenomenon around Jordan Peterson and what, why he has had the impact on people that he has. And so I, on my channel, I do commentary videos on his work and on anything else that's interesting to me. And then I also do conversations with individuals about whatever they want to talk about. And to me, what they select in terms of Jordan Peterson's interest is always interesting to me what hit them, why, how it changed their lives, so on and so forth. So that's a lot mm-hmm. of what I'm doing recently. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because I um, we, we've covered Jordan Peterson a little bit on this channel. And um, it's interesting. I really, really like about what, you know, half of what he says, and I really, really hate half of what he says. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I want to hear which half. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so I, I love his... Um, Everything that he says about personal responsibility, um, you know, improving yourself iteratively over time, um, a lot of his, you know, anti-SJW, anti-Marxism, you know, support of free speech, all of that I'm totally on board with. I totally love. Um, And and his, you know, discussion of gender differences across different groups, um, biological factors, things like that. Totally on board with all of that. The the second half that I really dislike is his uh you know he's doing this lecture series on the bible uh his views on um religion um i think i mean this is something interesting we could discuss i think that he's not um very clear sometimes on what he's saying and what he's not saying um so that's that's the part that i am uh, very very distasteful of <laughs> well where do you come at this in terms of your own personal religious or spiritual beliefs yeah, so that's a that's a great question. I should just be hundred percent honest. I'm a I'm an atheist. Um, okay. I grew up uh, going to an evangelical church. Um, okay. So for the first eighteen years of my life, um, you know, I was immersed and engulfed in um, just a very classically American religious upbringing. Um, you know, 
it was it was a church of christ um not uh, i'm a I'm kind of aware that there's like a cult version of that and a yeah. kind that's not. I don't believe I was the cult version of that. Um, <laughs> it <laughs> it was um, just like a very standard evangelical church. Um, you know, they they tried to follow the word of the Bible uh, as literally as like, a, you know, a 21st century person can and, um, you know, believe that Jesus was the son of God. You know, it's it's pretty basic. Um, yeah. So I would say that I, I don't know, I had an interesting experience with that um, because I would never say that I was 100% on board, even from my earliest memories, Mm -hmm. but, you know, definitely it was like, it was an interesting experience to not know for, you know, the first many years of my life that there were people who were not Christians. Um, So I sort of thought that, you know, like the doubts I was having or the disbelief Mm -hmm. that I was experiencing was some sort of defect of my own personality. Um, I had no idea that there were people who weren't Christians or people who were, um, you know, atheists, let alone other religions. So I, um, I, I think I was officially a non-believer. I sort of, you know, came to that conclusion myself right around the age of, you know, 15, 16, 17, something like that. And I'm 22 now, just for reference. Um, yeah, sorry if I rambled on, but so that's that's no, my. Keep going. That's fun. This is this is yeah. what I do. So <laughs> this is what I yeah. do with people all the time. Yeah, I'm, no. I'm very interested in your story. I'm very interested in the interplay of church and religion, and especially Christianity in your story. I'm interested in people's transitions in and out of different categories and identified as Christian. I went to church, but I never really believed. And then often, you know, when I got out of house from dad and mom and had a little bit more space, got into college, then, you know, I could explore in a whole variety of ways, including no longer going to church and so on and so forth. So I, mm-hmm. your, your story is, your story is very common yeah. amidst a lot of the people I talk to. And, and it's usually when they get into their, their twenties and usually somewhere in their thirties that they start having a different perspective on the stuff that they were taught when they were young. They're far enough away from it that they see it in a new light and often they see it with a new utility. And Jordan Peterson has really facilitated that experience for many, many people. In in March 2018, Malfi Buddha, who does not, you know, he's he's not a Christian in any way, it did a did a really he makes very beautiful videos did a video on how basically Jordan Peterson is capturing Sam Harris's audience. And, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Many of the people that I've spoken to have a story similar to yours. When Sam Harris came along, they really got into Sam Harris. And then when Jordan Peterson came along, they didn't think so much of Sam Harris. Mm-hmm. So that's been the story. Yeah, actually the, um, the, the first of the four horsemen to capture my attention was Hitchens actually. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he was. I think uh, he's the cleverest of them all. I mean, they uh, each yeah. have their role, but Hitchens was definitely the the most articulate, the cleverest, the most literate of them mm-hmm. all. Yeah, he could turn an English phrase like no one else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So he was really the the one who um, sort of. It was interesting, actually. Um, you know, the other the other host um, of this channel, none of them could make this time slot today. Um, but Adam, he and I have been best friends. You know basically since we were in kindergarten and both of our families were pretty religious. And, um, 
it was this sort of interesting experience of both of us um, sort of, it was like, it was almost, you know, this really interesting reasoning from first principles almost um, when we, you know, started exploring different ideas other than Christianity. Um, and it was this really sort of, it was actually, um, I don't know if you hear this a lot, but I, you know, a lot of people, it was, um, I, I hear like it was a, a big wrestling experience, you know, like leaving the church and they were really torn between like, well, these are the values I grew up with, but this is what kind of makes sense to me now. And there's this, there's this really tough tearing apart. Um, and what I thought was really unique and interesting uh, for both of us, but for me especially was there was sort of none of that. Um, it was mm. much more of like an immediate um, discovery and an immediate shift from, you know, believing or at least not disbelieving, um, you know, Christian ideas to discovering these arguments against Christianity being like, oh, wow, these make total sense. Like it was just, it was sort of just an immediate shift with no, um, there was no baggage, no, no emotional distress that came along with it for us. And for me, especially, I thought that was interesting. Was, was there, what were the implications in terms of your family and social circles? Mm, That's a good question. Um, well, my family is, you know, extended family included, they're all still just as religious as they were. Um, and there was a big, um, <laughs> it w- I, I was sort of naive at the time and thought, um, oh, wow, you know, I guess like, you know, religious people just haven't heard these arguments before. So if I, <laughs> you know, because I, I hadn't. Um, and so I was like, oh, oh, well, if I just, you know, share these arguments that I've heard, well, then, oh, everyone's just going to realize that this is wrong, too. You know, just like <laughs> I did. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, very naively, I sort of, you know, trotted out these arguments and fully expected everyone to have the immediate realization and change that I had had. Um, and obviously, as you can as you can guess, that didn't happen. Um so there was, you know, there were a few years uh, where I was sort of dumbfounded by the fact that any religious person who I met, who I showed these arguments to, didn't just initially um, do a full, you know, mea culpa and just say, okay, I was wrong here. You know, I, I was I was sort of shocked that that wasn't the case because um, it had been for me. And, and, you know, with family at this point, it's sort of a, um, <laughs> I guess, like a don't ask, don't tell situation. Um, where it's just understood that, you know, we, we differ on this point. Um, and I think that, you know, for, for my family, especially religion is so integrated into the rest of their lives Mm -hmm. that it's pretty inseparable. Mm -hmm. And I I think for me, I lost belief very early on, um, relatively speaking, I guess. Um, and it, it just became, it was never integrated to the extent that it was with my family. So it, it really, for me, didn't affect much outside of the actual beliefs of the religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, none of that surprises me that the, mm-hmm. the initial euphoria and desire to evangelize your own atheist, your new atheistic perspective, you find people who become Christians from non-Christians back Christian background have exactly the same impulse and, and new Christians are often the most ardent evangelists because they've just found this new thing. And so then they go to all of their atheist friends and share that and sometimes get the, exactly the same experience, but on the opposite that you had. And, and I think your point about, I think your point about the, the lack of dislocation 
with respect to when you changed this belief and the rest of your life didn't change, that speaks a lot to the, the continued secularization of the culture. If, for example, you had been born, let's say, in when I was born, which is in the early 60s, that would have been quite different because not only was the, the, the overall fabric of the country different, it was, you know, for example, in, in, when Jimmy Carter won the White House in, in 1976, the big, the big piece of interest about him publicly was that he was born again. And this identified a transition between, between kind of a mainline Cold War church posture to a more evangelical, expressive, individualist posture. But you know, so that was in the 70s. You get all the way after 9-11 and the, whereas during the Cold War, we, the country recruited God to help fight godless communism. 9-11 was a point of demarcation that now God and his allies, in that case, Islam, they are the enemy and they are suspect. So in a sense, you know, dear God, thank you for very much for helping us defeat the Soviets. Um, yeah. We don't like what's happened with Islam, so we don't need you anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and and just in very rough terms, you can see some of this playing out in American culture. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think... Um... You personally too, it, it is weird because, um, you know, like you said, it, it's, it's a common thing to see people get super excited about like new arguments for or against Christianity and then go try to spread them with people. Um, and what's interesting is, uh, that was, you know, arguments against Christianity were sort of the first iteration, but that really hasn't stopped at all with me. I mean, th- that's why, you know, this podcast was, um, was, you know, formed amongst four friends who just like, we just naturally talked about, you know, interesting philosophical arguments, or one of us would read a paper and be like, whoa, this is so interesting. This argument about normative ethics is something I've never heard. And we, you know, just share it with each other. And, you know, that's like the basis of all of this, you know, this project that we've done. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I wonder, so do you think that that is, I, I don't know, I, because my my religiosity um, and my church was very belief oriented. It mattered what you believed mm-hmm. and why you believed it. Mm-hmm. And I guess to harken back to to Peterson a little bit, it seems like that is not as much his focus as principles of action are. Right. Um, so, it. I mean, I we were talking a little bit before we went live, but. Um, I guess so the one thing that I'm really confused about is why he doesn't um make it more explicit about what he's saying right like I, I don't know to be honest I still I've watched a ton of Jordan Peterson and I still don't know what he actually believes about metaphysics or the existence of a god or not I I understand like his principles of action arguments but I don't know what that says about his metaphysics well the by virtue of having a channel where I discuss Jordan Peterson, I now have the real advantage over most people that when he says something that's close to the kinds of things I've been picking up on, everyone sends them to me, which <laughs> is which is really helpful. Yeah. 
and just recently in a question and answer program in Australia, he again was asked the belief question. Now, I, I think part of this and your own story can testify to it. The, the concept of belief as it is usually assumed within the church isn't functioning the way the church imagined it would. And it, does, it isn't functioning the way that churches tend to assert it does with respect to their entire system of who's in and who's out. So churches will tend to say, here are a list of propositions that if you ascend to, if you ascend to them, if you say, the, I believe in this, then suddenly your life will also conform in a whole bunch of behavioral ways that are supposed to somehow line up with those beliefs. Now take classic Christian beliefs of, of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Boom, right there you have a dislocation between what, especially if if people are growing up in a culture, that's part of the reason why evolution and those kinds of questions and the fundamentalist modernist fight of the late 19th, early 20th century become so important because right away you have dissonance between this thing that you say you believe that's supposed to change your life and what you grew up formally just kind of defaulting to saying you believed that didn't really have much relationship with the rest of your life. And then you bump into all of these other factors that say, well, you don't actually believe that at all because you don't act it out. Mm -hmm. And so when Peterson taught, when Peterson gets asked about his beliefs, I mean, at this, on this, he gives a few different answers regularly, depending on the context. If there's a context where he clearly feels he clearly likes the person who's interviewing him, like his conversation with Tim Lott and his conversation with an Israeli journalist recently. He will try to flesh it out. But for example, on this Australian on this Australian question and answer show, he basically says it's kind of a personal thing and I don't like sharing it in public, which is a fascinating response. That's interesting. But most of what he says when he talks about this, a lot of people say he's being he's being coy, he's being duplicitous, he's he's gaming. I don't think that at all because when I listen to him, sorry about the noise my dog is making. Oh, it's okay. Um, when when I listen to him, I think he is being absolutely as honest and clear as he can be, hmm. because he has done a lot of thinking between in the nexus between what you do and what you and what your talking mouth says the shape of the world is that you supposedly rationally connect with mm -hmm. and what he notes along with many many psychologists pastors people who watch note that the the stuff that they've discovered in the brain is very true in that you know, when they when they have those split brain experiments, mm. someone would do something with one side of the brain with one hand and the other side would make up a story that had absolutely nothing to do with yeah. the context of that situation. Now, mm. that has been happening as the culture continues to change. That has been happening and being manifest in churches. And I think more and more people get to the point of saying 
that's BS. I don't, I don't understand, you know, I, this belief in God, y'all act pretty much identical to your neighbors that don't go to church. Show me how this thing that's supposed to change your life really does change your life. And that was built into the, the rise in evangelicalism in the 60s. And usually when you have a movement in that, you'll have a lot of non-conforming behavior that because if you if you're making different noises if you're not behaving differently people are going to experience dissonance now what's happening in the culture now though as increasingly especially for some conservative christian and other religious groups their their moral systems become increasingly far, increasingly distant from, let's say, the moral systems of people who don't identify with a religion, that process will probably start turning the other way because Christian people will get weirder and weirder, not just in terms of the things they say, but the things they do. And that will actually, amongst religious groups, not just Christian groups, that will likely bring what they say and what they do into closer conformity by virtue of social pressure. So I think we're I think we're going to see continued evolution in that and it could very well be that part of what's going on beneath the Jordan Peterson movement is the beginning of that process. Hmm. That it's really interesting because I mean, there's a lot that you said there that's really interesting. So if like, if someone asked me, though, if I believed in God, my answer is one word. It's no. You know what I mean? Right. And but, but then if someone said, I don't know, it just maybe I'm missing something, but it seems like it should be possible, if not easy, to differentiate between a metaphysical belief because you know i'm sure you know uh, one of his responses is well it depends what you mean by belief it depends what you mean by god uh, so on and so forth but so then you know it, i i'm shocked that no interviewer well at least that i've heard maybe you've heard the, an interview where this happens but no interview just then turns around and says okay well god is a supernatural entity maybe even take the christian god if you want that actually created the universe that's actually you know, still omnipresent within it, still omnipotent within it, and who is actually in control of whether our immaterial souls go to heaven or not. And then by belief, I mean, what do you at this moment in time, if you had to bet your life on it or whatever, do, do you think is actually the case? You know what I mean? And I think that that question is pretty easily separable from a an empirical investigation on what a person or what a society acts out. It just seems like you should be able to differentiate those in principle. Um, and I, I don't think he does. Do you agree with that or not? You just set up the premise for the first conversation in Vancouver with mm. Sam Harris and Brett Weinstein. And when that conversation reached a conclusion, Peterson sits down with his computer and maps out what he believes. Now, when I did my commentary on that video, I said there's sort of God number one and God number two. And what Jordan Peterson is doing is via Darwin and evolution, 
reestablishing God number one for the culture. Now, the difficulty that you have is I recently played some of this video to a class I was giving to Christians. And as I was playing the video, because of that context, I was listening to the video as I imagined they would listen to it. And most of what Jordan Peterson said was unintelligible. And what was very interesting about that first conversation with Sam Harris in Vancouver, most of what Jordan Peterson said was unintelligible to Sam Harris. It was intelligible to Sam to Brett Weinstein, which was very interesting. Because Brett understood what Jordan Peterson meant by God. And so if you were to say, I don't understand what's so hard about this, my response to you would probably be, so when you say you don't believe in God, describe for me the being that you label as God in terms I can understand. And and that's exactly so. so Jordan Peterson goes through his description of what I call God number one, and Brett Wines or, or Sam Harris stops him and says, now, now, wait a minute. All that you just described is not God. Mm. And nobody would, that's not a historic, that's not a historic understanding. That doesn't relate historically to the term God. The problem Sam Harris has is he doesn't know enough history, and he especially doesn't know enough religious history. Because what Jordan Peterson laid out, if you can understand the terms he used, but in older symbolic and theological language, he very much described the underpinnings of what not just Christians or Jews or Muslims, but people throughout the world assume to be this being called God. You know, it's, it's helpful to remember that except with the possible exceptions of perhaps a few Greeks and, and actually fewer Greeks than people might imagine, almost no one before the last few hundred years didn't believe in God. Mm. What happened was that our ideas of this being and the role that this being plays in the world changed. So, um, so can, can you clarify what's the, so God one would be the classical God that I was taught was real. And then God, no, that's God oh, too. That's God too. Okay. That's okay. God too. And okay. that's the God that the new atheists usually debunk. That God is highly relational. And what that, what has happened to that God, especially since the sixties, if you listen to a sociologist named Robert Bella, wrote a, a book a book in the 80s called Habits of the Heart. Robert Bella also coined the term um, uh, political uh, civil religion when talking about JFK. Robert Bella used the term expressive individualism to describe what has become the default assumption of goodness in American society. Mm -hmm. That expressive individualism so another sociologist around the year 2000 named Christian Smith did surveys of teenagers and asked them about their spiritual and religious beliefs. And what he discovered that it didn't matter if they grew up Muslim or Presbyterian or Baptist or Catholic or Jewish or 
outside of a home, their basic matrix for spiritual assumptions were almost identical. And he called that he called that worldview, religious belief, moralistic, therapeutic deism, which was basically an outgrowth of this expressive individualism. And that basically is God number two. And the celebrity atheists, as Jordan Peterson calls them, have, have basically continued to debunk that God. And what Jordan Peterson has done is come around and say, but there's a God that was assumed by almost everyone throughout history. Um, and and to see, the, the difficulty that I have is when I say God, I've already triggered God number two in your mind. Yeah. But so when Jordan Peterson describes him and when Jordan Peterson fleshes him out, people begin to say, wow, why? What has been selecting? How has that gotten into our genetics? How has that how has that been making the choices all along through human history? Part of the problem is that we, we so we say no no it was random. Okay. But if you pause and you think about that term random, the god of the gaps argument is exactly what happens with the random argument because what we mean by random is a a process a, a, a semi-Newtonian mechanistic process too complex for us to describe, map, or predict. Yeah, yeah. That then came via Darwin in place of God selecting. And what Jordan Peterson essentially does is say, it hasn't, it's been, it's been less random <laughs> than that. And we are unfolding increasing layers of randomness. We are opening up these black boxes and dis and discovering that there's a lot going on that has actually been built into us and the language most appropriate to talk about these things is actually theological and because we don't really have the technical know-how to penetrate them so mm. that's really what's at heart of his whole project and why i think he's having the impact he's having on people even if they don't know it consciously Honestly, I wish he would bring you on tour with him and just lay out the difference between God one and God two for the audience. I, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, the way you described it is is pretty good in my opinion. It's just you know, God one is, um, you know, you could call it the archetypal God or like this um, emergent property of what selects what. It's this, um, it's metaphorical, right? It's an idea. That's and, right. And then there's God too, which is the classical metaphysical God, right? No, that is the expressive individualist God. It's also the historic Christian God. Yeah, yeah. So, so Jesus right. is very God too, because mm -hmm. you can look at him. He's relational. He's and his 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 public relations image in contemporary society tends to be fairly positive and a little bit woke. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Don't now. Don't you think? So, so I totally agree. I'm not going to fight you at all on that distinction. I think that's a great distinction to make. But don't you think that given, so if Peterson like just really took on board the context of the time and the country and the society that he's talking in, it just seems to me like, uh, I think he should realize that there are a lot of people who actually do subscribe to very antiquated beliefs. And I think by not laying it out in a sort of, you know, philosophy seminar way of this is exactly what I'm saying and this is not what I'm saying. I, I just think that would be a bit more responsible of him. 
A lot of it depends on what his agenda, what, where his interests lie and what his agenda is. And I think his public agenda has mostly been to, to try to resist sort of a simplistic identitarian wave. I mean, that's what you hear him talk about yeah. in 80% of the interviews with him. And when he goes on stage, I've been to three live performances of his, that tends to be a lot of what he talks about. That is his interest. Mm -hmm. The fact that people, he that's, so that's one of his interests. His other interest as a clinical psychologist is to help individuals live better lives. Those are the two things he's very interested in. And so that's what he's focusing on. All of this other stuff that I find most interesting about him, well, he's obviously deeply interested in it, but for him, that was sort of doing the, the behind the scenes stuff in order to come to the conclusions of the two polls that he's interested in. As a pastor, I'm interested in the other stuff because what I've seen is that what, what has happened with Jordan Peterson is almost a sub, an exercise in, you know, back in the 50s, they had all of this interesting talk about subliminal advertising that if they were showing the movie and they just put, you know, a quick, oh, here they're drinking a Coke and suddenly everybody gets thirsty. Yeah, yeah, the movie advertisements. Right. And yeah. so what that says is that, well, you've got this little part of your brain that's conscious and then you've got the rest of your brain, which is far more of your brain, actually, that is actually managing things and taking in stuff and doing a lot of the real thinking for you, we're, we're not sufficiently, we don't, we're not sufficiently aware of that part of our brain. But when Jordan, what Jordan Peterson is doing is talking to that part of the brain and a lot of people, and they might listen to him. And if you would ask them to sit down and really outline and describe what he says, they would have a really hard time with it. But something deep in their gut says, you know, this Bible, that there's more to it than I thought there was. And I, when I, I find that when I start studying it and thinking along the terms that Peterson is, I feel happier. My life, I sense more meaning in my life. And once they start to feel that, they want more of that. And mm -hmm. so then suddenly, and of course, I'm really focused on the little slice of people that are getting really turned on by that. And so then sometimes they find their way to me and then the conversation continues. Yeah. No, I mean, I would never, I would never argue that there's not, you know, great wisdom and beautiful poetry and, um, you know, really, you know, cinematic, amazing stories that can be found in the Bible. Um, it's just interesting to me, I, I guess one of the first things I realized was that it was such a mixed bag though. Um, there's prescriptions for, you know, barbarism. Um, there's terrible things that God either directly does or commands his people to do. And then there's wonderful precepts that can be found in there. Um, and it was just, <clears throat> it was interesting to me that in the context, I'm sure, I mean, I'd love to hear what you think about this, but in the context of um, church and a pastor preaching to an audience, it was very selective in what he preached, right? Like no, no church that I've ever heard of starts at Genesis 1-1 and goes to Revelation, whatever the last verse is. Um, 
and just talks about every part they go through the story with you know god sending the she bear to kill the you know the israel or the the, the children uh we're mocking elijah yeah yeah they don't go through, or yeah 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 that's right they don't go through um where lot sells his daughters uh as sex slaves or is that no uh, no no um uh, his that? daughters get him drunk oh that's right and yeah and have, to impregnate themselves yes <laughs> because they're afraid they will not they will not mm-hmm. um they will not be able to to have children and their line will not continue and yeah. that and they then become the the two nations next to Israel. That's right. But so yes, and, bring up whatever yeah. examples you want to, uh, you know, I, no, I there's lots of them. Yeah. And so there's a ton, but then I could bring you just as many examples of really, you know, just great stories, um, stories of mercy, of justice, you know, everything. Right. So there's these two big baskets that you could fill up. Um, and then there's honestly a third basket. There's a ton of boring stuff. There's lineages. There's, you know, just stuff that I, I've never heard anyone be interested in before. Right. Um, and it's just, it seems like you, not you, but people are importing their own interpretive motives and external belief systems. And they're kind of picking and choosing and getting the best bits and leaving out the rest. And that seems like a very secular project and not one that most people who ascribe um, or would describe themselves as Christians would, would um, like absorb. They wouldn't take that on. They wouldn't answer to that name. Yeah. Well, I, we should be fair. I mean, I preach through the Bible and the way you've described, I'm really, I haven't, I haven't strictly gone through everything, but I, a while ago, I, most, what happens in a lot of churches, they do these series, five ways to have a better marriage, six ways to so-and-so. I got really tired of that a number of years ago and said, I'm just going yeah. I'm, I'm to start in Genesis. And then when we get into the, the Easter season and the Christmas season, I'll, I'll jump into some of those seasons and do things in keeping with their seasons. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I very much had that had that same understanding and I wanted people to have a better understanding of the Bible because the Bible is a very foreign book. The, the important thing to recognize when, when anyone comes to the Bible and says, well, there's the good stuff and bad stuff. The person coming to the Bible already has a pre-baked filter Mm. of what is good and bad. And what people seldom do is ask themselves, well, where did that filter come from? Well, I got it from my parents. Okay. Well, where did the, your parents get it from? Well, they now now suddenly you're doing history mm-hmm. uh, because you start marching these filters back, and you begin to look at the fact that people a hundred years ago had very different ideas of what the good parts of the Bible were and what the bad parts of the Bible were. And in fact, being a pastor who gets a chance to listen to what people's opinions of the Bible are, you find that very that individuals themselves tend to have conflicting ideas of what the good parts of the bible are and what the bad parts of the bible are you know for example i was using daryl davis has a has a documentary on netflix where this is a guy this is a black musician who has built relationship with clansmen and his goal is to basically love them out of the clan yeah and so he had this i was using this as part of a sermon illustration my church is um, significant portion African American, and I made the comment that you know he was in fact he's been so determined on this effort that when one of the somebody in the clan was complaining how 
the bus companies would never rent them buses because sometimes they do these rallies and everybody would throw rocks at the buses. And so <laughs> the bus companies didn't want to have all that damage. And Daryl, because he was a musician, had a bus and he loaned his bus to the Klan. Hmm. And, of, you know, so this African-American woman in my church comes to me and says, did you see me giving you the stink eye during the sermon? I said, no. She said, you know, I was giving you the stink eye something awful. It was not right for that man to loan the Klan his bus. So, you know, there's mm. a lot right in there. And and what the so people look at the Bible today and they say, boy, this is a really strange book. And it is. It was written to very different cultures than our own. What I often try to tell people is, but consider this. The strangest thing about this Bible is that people over an enormous diversity of times and cultures have all regarded this book as special. In fact, you know, over the in the 20th century, a lot of there was a big emphasis of translating the Bible into indigenous people groups. And so you'd have these missionaries from often from an organization named Wycliffe who would go out into the jungles of Vietnam. And I remember meeting a guy who did this. You go out into the jungles of Vietnam into these tiny little tribes. Nobody knows their language because it's a group of about 100 or 200 or 1,000 people. They, they spend years learning the language. They never had written language. They write it all down. And then they translate the Bible into that language, which is just an incredibly difficult thing. And yeah. then they give the people the Bible. And I'll tell you, for just about any other book you could think of, the tribe that would receive that by, that book would probably say, is it well, maybe it, it's good at starting fires and maybe, you know, cleaning up after I, you know, yeah, do something in the woods. But and, and so then there've been these stories that basically so then sometimes the missionaries hand them the Bible and they have to leave because of political reasons or something. Mm -hmm. And then you come back a few decades later and these people are in some ways connecting with this book. And you'd say, well, that's weird. Because name any other book that you've ever read, and especially the books that you found, you know, very helpful in terms of, you know, chicken soup for the soul. The, the tribe would have long abandoned that book. But this Bible, how can it connect with so many people? Well, part of the experience you have with it that says, well, there's good stuff and bad stuff. You bring it to another cultural group and they're going to say there's good stuff and bad stuff, but their lists are going to be different. Mm. And so some of the things that people have found is a lot of people, when they read through the book of Genesis, there's all these genealogies. So-and-so begat, so-and-so, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. We read it that we're like, oh, gosh, why on earth do they have this in here? Yeah. You bring that to certain African tribes. Those are their favorite parts because they're, they're, they're cultural, their cultural is all about these ancestors. And see, what Peterson gets into is Peterson says, now there are these archetypal, there are these archetypal frameworks all around that are universal with human beings. How are they universal? And Peterson wants to get at kind of the biological underpinnings of them because that's very old. And this stuff has been embedded in the Bible. And it's for that reason that this book has this dynamic and doesn't go away. And that just, whatever, whether... If you're a secularist, say, I don't believe in anything supernatural. That is a data point that is really interesting. And mm -hmm. Peterson is curious about it. And so he's trying to figure out. So then he looks at these stories and he says, 
you know, it's these these stories and these patterns in these stories keep coming up. Why do people throughout huge diversities of time and huge diversities of culture connect with this? There must be something that's even biological about it that's been encoded into it. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a crazy idea, but people listening to Peterson begin to say, I think it's true. Well, what does that mean? Especially for this idea of God number one. Yeah. Don't I mean, don't you think I mean, I, I'm not gonna disagree with any of the empirical facts there. Obviously, you know, the Bible, everyone knows what book the Bible is, right? Um, but it, it's weird that there is a certain aspect of all this that seems very arbitrary to me. Like I, I, you know, wrestled with the Bible because that happened to be the book that my culture, you know, believed. But I have no doubt that, I mean, you know, everything we're talking about here is the counterfactual, which we can't really know. We have to guess at. But I mean, there's no reason to think that if I had been brought up a Muslim, I would have wrestled with the Quran just as much as with the Bible. And we'd, you know, I wouldn't be talking, to, I'd be talking to the Muslim analog of you right now, you know? And it it seems like everyone, and I'm not necessarily ascribing this to you, but has this soft spot for their own religion of their culture or their birth. And it it just seems to me like we could we could say nearly everything you said about the Quran or about um, the Bhagavad Gita or you know any other religious text you want to take, and it it's I don't see so like it's weird that we can say that uh, to to more or less of an extent per religion you know whatever you like, but I don't know what it, it certainly seems to me like, certainly seems to me like no metaphysical conclusion can be drawn on that because everyone just believes in their own text. So then if we move to, um, you know, the archetypal, the sociological, the meaning portion of it, the God one, um, it seems to me like that's saying that there is, there's wisdom that is, is culturally held in individuals and in societies. And a lot of the times people are just looking for a book that, like you said, maybe translates something that they subconsciously know is true into a conscious way to express it. And I don't know what that really says. I don't know how much good things that says about the book itself as opposed to the human wisdom, right? Maybe maybe these books are just a medium that simplistic creatures like ourselves need to kind of translate that subconscious to conscious. But it just it seems like a lot of people take the argument way farther than that. Yeah. Well, think, think about it this way. And basically the argument you just, you just round it is said, well, okay. So somehow some book found its way to be this. Mm-hmm. We can think let's, let's translate this into a different sphere of life. Um, okay. Let's say you're, you're a heterosexual male. You're attracted to girls. Mm-hmm. You could say, well, you could be attracted to <laughs> what's that? I said an example that altered it, but we'll <laughs> sure, go with we'll, girls. We'll stick with it, yeah. And you you might say, you know, I could I could marry any girl. I could, you know, I could marry any girl. I could be attracted to any girl. But here's the funny thing. You're not just attracted to any girl. You are, in fact, attracted to certain girls more than other girls. Mm-hmm. And ironically, where whereas there's plenty of variation 
you know, ooh, what's your type? Well, I, I prefer girls who look such and such. What's your type? I prefer girls who are such and such. Okay. Those people who are running, let's say, okay, Cupid, they have a huge problem because guys stack up <laughs> in terms of, and, you know, it was the hot or not hot. It was the beginnings. It was the proto Facebook, you know, yeah, hot yeah. or not hot. Who's hotter, this girl or that girl? Now, you might say, well, I could, I could be attracted to any girl. Oh, but you're not. In fact, they all stack up. Now, let's take it another step further. Jonathan Haidt has these, these taboo discussed, has these taboo discussed things that he does, which are really interesting. So yeah. then I could ask you the brother and sister experiments. You're sure, talking the brother about. and sister experiment. I say, okay, well, you know, here's here's a funny thing. People are most often attracted to to people who have very similar features to them. Um, you know, why why is it taboo? Why is incest taboo? Because oh, here's an irony that. Well, you've got lots of availability to a sister, you know, because you if you have the same parents, your sister is sort of the same as you on an attractiveness scale, which would make you a, a proper bond. I mean, there are many, many reasons why your ideal choice would be your sister. And culture after culture after culture after culture, it's taboo to have sex with your sister. Now, if you ask a contemporary if you ask an American about that with their own frame of knowledge, they will say, well, something was biologically built into us to avoid, you know, we, we want enough DNA diversity so as not to, and, and that may very well be true, but we discovered DNA like historically two minutes ago. And this has been a factor that's near universal in human behavior and in human consciousness for reasons we don't know for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And so you'd say, well, is that arbitrary? And you might say, probably not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now, explaining I mean, why it's not. Now, now here's the funny thing about the Bible. So I just did, I do these conversations on my channel with people and a, a, a conversation I just posted this week was with a guy named Eric. And he asked me, what's the second most printed book in the history of the world. The first is the Bible by this mm -hmm. enormous degree. I yeah. mean, if there, there's nothing that's even close. The second most printed book is Mao's Red Book with like eight or 900 million copies. Huh. And we all know why, you know, that got yeah. duplicated in a crazy way because of a particular political situation that's mm -hmm. fairly close to us. So that makes sense for that. He said, well, actually... The most, the most published book, the second most published book in the after the Bible is Euclid's Geometry. Hmm. Now we'd have to say, well, why would that be? Well, and then he began to say a few things about Euclid's Geometry, where Euclid's Geometry starts with a point, and then it starts with two points to make a line, and and from from that which is most self evident, it constructs basically a a mathematical system that a huge diversity of cultures found enormously useful and couldn't argue with. Mm -hmm. And you would, you would hear that and you'd say, boy, that would, it would really make sense that a book like that would endure through time, be massively cross-cultural. That makes sense. Then you have to ask the question, why isn't Euclid's book number one? 
Why is it a far, 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 far second to the degree that this one particular moment in time, this one particular country could mass produce a book with more copies of that than Euclid's geometry? Even though Euclid is, I mean, how much of us is based on math, our, our society? So, yeah. so right there again, you have, the, have to ask the question, this book, the, the facts about this book throughout human history, regardless of what you believe about the content, is, is about as compelling as asking the question, why would your parents be really upset if you had sex with your sister? Now, I know that's a really <laughs> icky illustration. Yeah, yeah, I have a sister, unfortunately. <laughs> but, but, you know, but there's the point. I mean, in terms of all these other things, well, I could, I could marry any girl, but you don't want to. Mm -hmm. You're attracted to certain girls. You should be attracted to your sister but you're probably not, and and it's a that's we're not going to go into that whole conversation. But yeah, for the record, I'm not. <laughs> okay, good. But here's the thing: we we tend to tell the story that says it's very random. But the mm -hmm. story of the Quran and everything that's around the Quran is very different from the Bible, and that's the same for let's say some of the some of the Hindu texts or some of the other ancient texts. Yeah. And so, just even. Even if you say, I don't, even if you knew nothing about the contents of the Bible, mm -hmm. a space alien comes in and is just kind of doing a study about human beings, very quickly they would, that Bible book, what's going on with that? And mm -hmm. just like the question of incest, you might pause and think something has been built into us that connects with that book. And there's a connection there. And really what a lot of Jordan Peterson has done is try to work on that connection. And again, it's just been very interesting that when I talk to people, a lot of the people who've called me have had issues with depression and they will tell me things like, I've struggled with depression all my life. I started listening to Jordan Peterson and especially his biblical series and I wasn't depressed. Well, what's with that? You know, mm -hmm. we understand taking a pill and brain chemistry and and we understand, oh, I just got into a new love relationship and I have this euphoria in the first part of the relationship. That we understand. But listening to this guy, and if you listen to his lectures, I mean, they're hardly linear. I mean, he's all over the map. Yeah. Why? It's weird, but it's there. So just look at the data. Yeah. So, okay, so I've got a few questions. So yep. if you... um. So to go back to your analogy of, um, you know, you talked about how incest is not, um, we have like this guttural reaction to it, right? And that's, but like you said, we've only understood DNA for the past, what, maybe 100, 200 years since Mendel, since Darwin. Um, so, you know, to the, to the hypothetical situation, what if we had a book that had been passed down from generations to generations and it was called you know, on not having sex with your sister or something like that. <laughs> and, and it, you know, it had um, this sort of flowery language in some parts. It had some things that were historically verifiable, some things that weren't. But the core tenant of that book was don't have sex with your siblings, right? right. We could say that um, in the same way that the Bible maybe is sort of a, a, um, a container for moving cultural wisdom, we could say that that book is a container for 
you know, transmitting in a succinct package across generations, this idea of don't have sex with your siblings, right? Mm -hmm. Well, so if that were the case, once we discovered DNA and we can sort of say, well, you know, look, your your kids are probably going to be a little slow and then their kids are going to be really slow. So, you know, don't have sex with your siblings and we can give more defined, um, maybe better reasons why. At that point, it seems like that book would become archaic and not useful. Mm-hmm. And it seems like for more and more of the Bible, that is becoming the case. Like um, a, a, another example that people often bring up is, um, you know, well, the Bible says not to eat certain foods because, you know, they carry parasites, you know, pigs are unclean, things like that. Um, and that would have been very wise at the time. But now that we understand the science of disease and things like that, and we can give a scientific, you know, reason and constraints and say, here, you know, 165, if you cook pig to here, you're okay, you won't get trichinosis or whatever. Um, that part of the Bible becomes not as relevant. Now, are you are, are you agreeing with that and then making the argument that we don't have that meaning um, anecdote or whatever you want to call it, that that scientific meaning or that new cultural meaning so that we can push it out of the Bible or, or push the Bible out of our sphere of what we think is useful? Or are you saying that we're never going to get better than the Bible? I'm saying, well, well first of all, if... The, the story you told presumes that someone at some point has an agenda, which is, you know, tell people not to have sex with their sister. Um, and so they're then they're going to construct a book around that in order to achieve that outcome uh, well, I guess over time. It, it and I know that's not emergent. Yeah. It, that, but that's that's that emergent quality. See, part yeah. of the question. And again, Peterson lays this out in his biblical series is. Even the fact that the book has taken on the shape that it has, one of the things that, for example, over the last hundred years, authors, you know, people who studied the Bible very carefully, because the Bible took such a high priority in our culture, when the scientific revolution came on, we got all enamored with our approach to knowledge, which is science, a scientific approach to knowledge. People began taking that and applying that to the Bible. And a lot of theories came about, which I think are quite true, that there were probably a lot of other documents that came together in the Bible. And and there's some parts of the Bible that are explicitly that way. For example, the book of Job was likely a book that was in a variety of cultures and the Hebrews adapted it. It's Mm -hmm. part of wisdom literature. So there's, there's a whole lot of prehistory to the Bible. Yeah. But it, it isn't, it, the Bible just kind of emerges through history. Mm-hmm. And, and it's even difficult, let's say, step out of a, a, a church situation. Sure. If you were to ask someone, what is the Bible for? That's a really hard question to answer. Mm. Is the Bible for inspirational reading? Is the Bible for telling you how to behave is the bible for learning history of ancient peoples we we can't even answer that question now now part of the difficulty of when people read the bible today and 
is we bring to the Bible some assumptions that we might not even know we have about what this book is for. And I, as a pastor, find that because people, and in fact, I have big disagreements with many people in churches about this, because they'd say, well, the, what the Bible essentially is, is a list of a list of rules that tell you what to do. And if you follow this these rules, then this, then this man in the sky named God will say, oh, they followed the rules. When they die, I will give them a really nice place to live with harps and streets of gold and stuff. Oh, they didn't follow the rules. I'm going to send them to a fiery place with devils and pitchforks, and I'm going to torture them for eternity, and I'm going to love it. Mm. I don't think you find that story in the Bible. There are elements of the Bible you can use to construct that story. What actually happens with the Bible throughout history is that different groups, churches mostly, but, but many other religions too, take little bits of the Bible and construct much more culturally appropriate and relevant sub-stories from the Bible that are useful within their historical contexts. Okay. And that's actually what the work of theology is. Mm -hmm. But why they keep going back to this source material and usually adding things from their own culture and so if you so that that tribe in in the jungles of Vietnam that you go back to 15 years later, you drop the Bible off, they're gonna there's gonna be some similarities to what you'll find in churches. They'll be talking about this Jesus, they'll be talking about this God, they'll have some of those basic ideas, but their expression of what they find in this Bible will also be completely culturally unique. Mm -hmm. And so people from other cultures will look at that and say, well, this is classic of what happened in missionaries. Uh, European missionaries came to Africa and told all those women, boy, you really got to cover up. Yeah. And, and in some countries, what they didn't realize was that the women who covered up were actually prostitutes. So you've now basically culturally made all the women of your village prostitutes. Well, yeah. that wasn't a good thing. Yeah, yeah. But there's, there's again, there's this very dynamic, mysterious thing just constantly happening around this book. And, and actually, your story is, again, part of this process. And mm -hmm. what's happening is that the, the overlay that your historical community had on this book, you no longer found compelling. And so you walked away from it. Mm -hmm. But who knows, 20 years from now, you might just find yourself in a particular situation that, and then something in your mind will say, boy, there's this Bible story about that. Then you go back to that book and you start reading it and mm -hmm. off you go. And yeah. this has just kept happening throughout history. Yeah. I think at this point, it's it's more likely that I, I would say to myself, oh, there's this interesting philosophy paper about this. Maybe you should go with that. But I mean, no, you're right. It's always possible that anyone can find their way back to... Um, to a religion. I, I just have good reason to think that probably won't happen. <laughs> <with me. laughs> so, Watch. You might marry someone you said you never would. <laughs> True. True. No, pe people can always change. Yeah, That I'm, happens. Yeah, we'll check in in 10 years and see if I'm still right. <laughs> well, okay, so here, I want to see if you would agree with this statement then. So if I said the Bible is a book that is this massive compilation from a ton of different cultures, a ton of different authors, it has a ton of different messages in it. And each culture 
who has come across the Bible has found, like you said, these different things to pull out of it, to add to it. And it's this really open source. There's flowing in, there's flowing out. And it is this, it's a pretty dynamic work, right? It's not stagnant. Um, Okay, so would you agree with that statement? Just what I would say, yeah. well, it doesn't come from a ton of different cultures. It came from yeah, a yeah. few cultures. And has the, been modified by a ton. The mystery of it has not been the diversity mm-hmm. as much as the cohesion. That's, and it's not you know, a perfect cohesion, but, but the cohesion has been the surprising thing about it, that what has come out of it amidst all the different cultures, we would assume that our lives would be radically different from North Africans in the fifth century. We would assume that. What's interesting is are the ways in which they are the same and the nexus connections through that book. That's what's peculiar. What do you mean by cohesion? Um, because I could pull up a, a list of a ton of different contradictions in the Bible. So, so what do you mean by cohesion? Well, it, it'd be something. It'd be something again similar to the number of cultures in which incest is a taboo. Mm. So, you mean there's a ton of cultures that value things either directly, explicitly pulled from the Bible, or that you could find in the Bible? Well, well, part of it, you know, part of it, part of at least Jordan Peterson's argument is that. There's no question that what what happened, especially during the colonial period and the rise of this this rump of Asia, which is Europe, Mm -hmm. uh, terribly diverse, terribly fractured, you know, almost continuous warfare arises from the ruins of the Roman Empire, a civilization which begins to develop tools and ways of behaving that in very short order conquers the world. Mm. And one of the commonalities all of that has is with this book. And we can't, we don't quite know why that is. Now, some of those connections, you'd say, well, you know, David in David conquered his neighbors just like Napoleon conquered his neighbors, mm. but conquering neighbors is nothing unique to that book. People no. conquer their neighbors all the time. Sure. So, I mean, part of it is that there are these broad trends and patterns that we can recognize, but we can't quite distill them down. But over time, they tend to stack up in in ways that show these patterns and repetitions. Mm-hmm. Like, is it is it the case? Well, let's again go back to incest. Uh, let's look at families where there are incest and families that there aren't. Well, generally speaking, families that there aren't incest produce happier, healthier children who thrive on all different aspects. Mm-hmm. Let's look at let's look at say uh, a family with a, a father and a mother and their biological children. Those families, generally speaking, outperform families of other permutations, mm-hmm. uh, monogamy, men, most men are not by nature monogamous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's, that's an achieved, that, that monogamy is an achievement mm-hmm. for men more than women. And again, Brett Weinstein will go through all the biology of that. Yeah. Why do monogamous cultures 
why have they tended to outcompete polygamous cultures in, in vast scales? That doesn't mean you can't find a polygamous culture that you would prefer to a monogamous culture somewhere, mm -hmm. but generally speaking. So, and, and then the Bible seems to be, the Jordan Peterson's point is that the Bible is somehow under this and we don't know why, <laughs> yeah. but it's there and you can't really argue with that data. So it mm -hmm. might be worth looking at. I wonder... It seems to me like I, I'm curious why he says the Bible is under it as opposed to over it. Uh, I mean, why why couldn't it just as plausibly be uh, instead of the source of wisdom, a distillation of past wisdom, right? Like, I, I guess I'm trying to get at if you think the is the wisdom internal to the Bible and we pull it out or is it external and we've put it in? Or is it sort of both where people who wrote it put it in and we are now taking it out? What's the relationship there in your mind? Well, I think Jordan Peterson quite rightly would say both. Okay. That he would say that ancient peoples, all of this wisdom, you know, got distilled into the Bible. And I would argue that, see, it's, you've got genetics and epigenetics. And so mm -hmm. in many ways, the Bible are the, is the genetic code, but then there's this layer of epigenetics around it, which is the church, theology, all the conversation that, that also then enhances it and applies it. And so you'll get differentiation at the epigenetic level to, to usually adapt to different cultures and technologies and all of this change. But no, wisdom got encoded in it. And again, you would have, you know, it'd be, so, so say your father says, don't have sex with your sister. Okay. Is that wisdom from above or wisdom from below? Well, he probably was told it from his father, maybe. See, here's the funny thing. Nobody ever says it. Yeah, not, yeah, not a <laughs> conversation, yeah. That's right. By the way, here are the rules of the family. Yeah. No, nobody even has to say it. And then you have to say, well, that's weird. Because, mm. but but as a kid, you know, there's all of these rules from the household you grew up in that nobody ever told you, but you all know what they are. Yeah. But but we're on that living in one household. So that stuff gets imprinted into the Bible and it's found to be true. But again, the Bible isn't really a list of rules and that's yeah. not really how the Bible works. It's much more a story, mm -hmm. which is far more compelling than the rules. Because if you if you sit down and say, oh, boy, this Bible something else, I'm going to read through it. You read through Genesis, you kind of skim over the genealogies, you mm -hmm. get into Exodus, and there's some cool stories. Then you get to the middle of the book of Exodus, and then you stop because yeah. you have all these rules about behavior and then the furniture of the tabernacle. And you say, what the heck is this? Yeah. <laughs> then you jump you know, a few bits and numbers. You skip all of Leviticus. There's a lot of, you know, summary in Deuteronomy. And then, oh, Joshua's got some cool stuff. And then you got all the numbers. So, mm. I mean, it, it's 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 a crazy book. Yeah. Well, uh, what you said there was interesting because you said, you know, we don't have to have these conversations that say, uh, you know, don't have sex with your sister or whatever. People just, you know, they you grow up already knowing that. Well, if... I don't know. To me, that seems like if there was this book that had been passed down from generations and one of the central themes was don't have sex with your sister, isn't that sort of not needed at, at that point? Especially once you, I don't know, it just seems I'm not finding a 
compelling reason why we would still need the Bible. And I, I understand that, you know, it, it, like you said, a lot of people are deriving, um, you know, great meaning from it. They're, 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 you know, changing their lives. Um, but it, I guess to take like a really scientific approach, wouldn't that only diagnose a problem in a society and not tell you which solution was right? Like, we don't know if our society were different and better. Cause I'd, I'd sign off on every dotted line you want to give me that talks about how terrible our society is for, you know, meaning and well being and, and like a, a Aristotelian, like eudaimonia feature of life, right? It's so superficial. I'd agree with all of that. But um, I don't know why that wouldn't say that, okay, we have to fix our society as opposed to saying, okay, we need to instill the Bible. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, in, in many ways, I in my experience pastorally, the Bible unless you're already committed to a religious project for a whole host of reasons, for many people, the Bible is a just-in-time book. Mm. In other words, they their life isn't going so well. They've, um, they've just gotten a divorce. Uh, their relationship with relationship with someone is, is on the ropes and they, they have a, they have a sense of that they have a sense that something's wrong, but they can't, they, they don't know what to do about it. And, you know, somehow in the back of their mind, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down by green pastures. He leads me by still waters. He restores, he, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and these things just start to echo in them. And so then they're drawn to it. And then they read another Psalm. And then they get a little curious and they go to YouTube and they look at the Bible project. And it's like, oh, Oh, there's a there's a lot to this book. I remember one of the people that I baptized in my church. He was in his 70s. He had grown up in a Christian. He was African American. Grew up in the Bible Belt. Moved to California. Had a family. Worked. You know. Um, had kids. Uh, so on and so forth. His wife. His wife was a member of the church. She was a committed believer. I went over to visit them one day, and he had like four different versions of the Bible mapped out on a on a coffee table. He hadn't himself made a decision to become a Christian, but he was investigating this. And, you know, it wasn't until his seventies that he began to pause and say, well, there's, there's, there's some, I, I see something in this, but I don't know what it is. And I'm curious and I, and I want to look at it. And that usually tends to be what happens. And, and that's part of the reason why so many people become Christians in prison. Well, you've, mm. you've almost made the perfect place. They got all kinds of time in their hands. They got nothing to do. You know, you can get Bibles, you know, oh, gosh, here's a Bible. And they start reading these stories. And boy, these stories are crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you know, even even the incest thing, is there a rule against incest? Yeah. But it's probably more compelling is when you find some of the stories of incest in the Bible, such as, mm-hmm. you know, the sons of David. Um, mm-hmm. Ammon rapes, rapes Dinah. Is it Dinah or Tamar? who is, you know, these names keep getting repeated, and, and then Absalom kills him. And that sets up this entire story. And as Jordan Peterson notes, one of the most interesting things of the Bible is if you only know the Bible from learning it in Sunday school, and then you read the Bible itself much later as an adult, you're usually quite surprised because usually churches do a really bad job with it. And they make the Bible all these moralistic stories and yeah. then you start reading that 
you know, Job flees Sodom and he's in a cave with his daughters and they get him drunk in order to rape him. You know, they're obviously not doing it for sexual pleasure. They're something in their culture is driving them to to need male children. And you, you start peeling that thing back. Well, well, what's going on in that culture? And and what does that mean? And 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 what's and, and then they become nations, and those nations are related. To, I mean, it's an incredibly nerdy thing, and a lot of people get stuck in that nerddom. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the ultimate uh Star Trek series or something That's like right. that. That's right. Yeah. It's the yeah. mother of all of them. Yeah. So, hmm. All right. I so I gotta ask, what do you um so so tell me, what am I missing in all this then? So what do you think that I'm missing that I'm not a believer? Well, it's it's really hard because I really don't know you, and so I sure. couldn't I couldn't look at your life. I'm a this frustrates people. I'm a I'm a Calvinist, and so I I'm not particularly anxious about you. I my thinking is you think you're in charge of your life. I've got my doubts. And if God wants to get a hold of you and do something with you, uh, he will. And my only advice for you is don't play chicken with God because if, if, if he wants your attention and you don't want to give it to him, um, he's, he's got ways of, of, getting your attention that you might not like. So I, I'm a very patient evangelist in that, you know, here's an interesting story out of the New Testament. The apostle Paul holds the cloaks of the people who are stoning Stephen, basically Mm. giving approval to his murder. Yeah. The apostle Paul goes on a rampage, hunting down, getting arrested and probably killed Christians. And he's quite successful at it. And on one trip to to Damascus, Jesus stops him, reveals himself, and changes Paul's life. Well, here's the question. Why not two years earlier? I mean, come on, God. Why 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 wouldn't you stop this very successful anti-Christian from his rampage? I don't know. I can't answer that question. You You might ask Tolkien... Why why not have Bilbo kill Golem so that Frodo doesn't have to deal with him? Mm-hmm. Well, and isn't that, isn't that slightly disanalogous? I mean, uh, the the Tolkien stories everyone accepts are just a myth, right? But I don't. Are, would you would you wouldn't put the Bible on the same level as a uh, you know the Hobbit? Would you? You're you're elevating the Bible to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't right? put the Bible. I wouldn't put the Hobbit on the same level as the Bible. Lord of the Rings gets closer, but <laughs> see, I would argue you are you are living in the myth. That's what myths are. Mm-hmm. You're living in the myth. It's just you're just as blind to the whole story as Frodo was to his story, and you have to be because you're in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah, you can't get behind your own self and and watch from a third person perspective. And you don't have, I mean, even a, a work of fiction, I use this analogy because it, it shines lights on certain aspects, but even a work of fiction is fairly flat compared to the enormity of life as we see it. But I, I use that illustration to point to the fact that 
we are we are for the most part clueless about this world and our lives and the older you get the more you realize that certain decisions you made at some point that you had i mean all, anyone who gets married i mean marriage is the craziest thing in the world because you, what you're doing is choosing to connect yourself to another human being and that relationship probably children are going to come out of it that relationship is going to govern your future in ways that your 20 something self who spotted that chick because she was hot you could never have imagined those outcomes mm -hmm. life is like that and so no you're you're in the midst of your own mythological adventure and you're just getting started yeah I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Um, I think, you know, we, we differ a lot on different questions, but um, I, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed this. Oh, um, I've enjoyed it too. Yeah. And I, um, you know, what? I think I, I would love uh, sometime in the future for you to come back on. Um, Cause I think uh, especially Adam, but especially uh, well, also the other two would enjoy talking to you a good bit. And I think there's a lot to explore. Okay. Um, but so I, I want to give you the chance, um, tell people where they can find more of your videos, more of your work, everything like that. Okay. Uh, if you go to YouTube and you just type in Paul Vanderclay and you can put that link in the, it's mm -hmm. just my name, type in Paul Vanderclay, you'll find my YouTube channel. And that's probably what'll be of interest to most of the people listening to this. I am doing a conference in Melbourne, Australia on March 30. And if you... I, I should I should figure I'll I'll post some more videos about that pretty soon um, about Jordan Peterson and the Jordan Peterson phenomenon. But yeah, just find me on YouTube and um, I'm easy to pretty easy to find on Gmail. If you just Google my name, you'll find me and you'll be able to get in touch with me. Yeah, so I'll include yeah links for everything in the description of this video. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, well, thanks, Paul. This has been a ton of fun, and um, I definitely learned something. Well, thank you, Jordan. It's been a pleasure. And to everyone watching, uh, you can, you know, check out more at our uh, website, at our YouTube. Everyone's heard this spiel a bunch of times. So I'll go ahead and uh, go ahead and end the stream. But to everyone who watched, thank you for watching. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode and learned something from it. And if you want to support my work and what I'm doing, you can do so by supporting me on Patreon. You can go um, to patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers and donate um, on a monthly basis and receive rewards for your donation. Um, again, that's J-O-R-D-A-N-M-Y-E-R-S. And uh, the links will to everything will be in the description below. If you can't monetarily support me, you can support me in other ways by liking this video, uh, commenting on it below, reviewing the show on iTunes, or sharing it with a friend or with your Twitter followers. Um, you can also email me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And if you want, um, you can check out my other show called That's BS. Um, it's a more discussion-based show with me and friends. Uh, I mentioned it at the top of this episode. So um, if you enjoyed this, please consider supporting me on Patreon. And as always, thanks for listening.